Well, good morning, and again, welcome to worship here at First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. However you're coming today, in person or online, if this is your first time with us or if you have long called this place home, we are so glad to be worshiping together today. Summer is a season for adventures. I talked with some here today who are just coming back from some adventures. Maybe that is you, or maybe you're shortly headed off on one. But the summer is often a time to explore different places and paces of life. This summer, as Mark has shared at First Press, we are going to join the larger church on an adventure through scripture by way of the lectionary. Now, if you are not familiar with church speak, let me explain what the lectionary is. In a world of Google Maps, the lectionary is kind of like the church's atlas. While many of us are used to plugging in our exact desired location and choosing our routes, whether it's the most direct, the most picturesque, the least tolls, the lectionary offers us a very different way. It is a meandering guide navigating the breadth of scripture over the course of three years. It follows the church seasons, the season of preparing for Jesus's arrival, for preparing for his death and resurrection. And it takes major thoroughfares through the gospels and Psalms, but it also takes lesser known back roads through the Old Testament and the epistles, that is the letters in the gospels, to give us a curated tour of the expansive nature of scripture. And this summer, you are invited to come along for the ride, to join your First Press pastors and visiting preachers and the church throughout the world in this great adventure as we explore places we might not have otherwise gone and forge connections we might not have otherwise made. So church, let's get going. Our gospel lectionary text for today comes from the, the gospel of Matthew, chapters 11, verses 16 through 19 and 25 through 30. You're welcome to follow along in your pew Bible or else on the screens. Listen for God's word for us today. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants, to little people. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Church, let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your word is proclaimed, we may hear your gracious invitation for us today. Amen. Our lectionary reading for today guides us straight into the heart of Matthew's gospel. If we'd been along for the ride in previous weeks as the lectionary had guided us, we would have journeyed with Jesus through his first years of ministry, through his first time of ministry in his neighborhood of Galilee. If we'd followed his footsteps, we would have noticed that he traveled around teaching scripture in synagogues like other rabbis, like other Jewish teachers. If we'd listened in, we would have heard his first major sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, blessing the meek and offering a new edgy interpretation for the ancient Torah or law. If we'd watched, we would have seen Jesus heal sick person after sick person, diseased people, and free people from the oppression of demons that haunted them. When we encounter Jesus in our text today, he's drawn crowds and even some devoted followers. And with growing crowds come growing expectations. Just before our text today, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who shows up earlier in Matthew, reaches out to him with a question. John's also a rabbi, but a very different kind of rabbi. He's known for his fiery hellfire messages of repentance and teaches that he is preparing the way for the Messiah. He thought this Messiah was Jesus, but now he's not so sure. Sitting in prison for finally ticking off the wrong people, John sends some of his own disciples to ask Jesus a question, to ask a real question, to have real talk with him. The question is to the point, as as John's way really is, and it is this, are you the one who's to come, or are we to wait for another? Are you the real deal, Jesus, or should we stop wasting our time? John's question is a fair one. Reaching the end of his resources and nearly the end of his time, John wants to know if he's gotten it right. The the Jesus that John proclaimed was fiery, powerful, authoritative. John's early Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was at hand, and so get yourself ready. But the Jesus since then, since that baptism, well, he doesn't quite match John's expectations. Jesus is a different Messiah than John was expecting. And John's not alone. When we pick up in our text today, others have clearly been disappointed with Jesus. So much so that Jesus compares them to a bunch of kids sitting on the front stoop, pouting that their playmates, John and Jesus, won't play along with their games. They played wedding, but John wouldn't dance. They played funeral, but Jesus wouldn't mourn. John was too serious, fasting and preaching judgment. Jesus was too social, eating and drinking too much and with all the wrong people. The people find reasons to take offense to both John and Jesus. John is too ascetic, Jesus too liberal. Turns out there is more than one way to disappoint expecting people. Who knew? 
Until this point, there has been a lot of people around John and Jesus. Many had heard John preach and been moved to be baptized. Many had listened to Jesus preach and been moved to ask for healing and release. Overall, people were intrigued, but they weren't impacted. They were curious, but they weren't committed. Jesus, the Messiah, didn't meet their expectations. Expectations. We all have them. Sometimes they're gleaned from information that is passed on to us. Sometimes they're fashioned from our own personal experiences. But either way, our expectations are a way of making sense of patterns and helping us anticipate. Our brains do not like mystery. They are wired to have expectations. This morning, you decided to come to worship. What expectations did you bring into this space? If you're a guest, maybe you heard from family member or friend that you could expect to be warmly welcomed here. And I hope that that has been the case. Perhaps you have come to expect that you'll experience moving music and honest prayers here. Maybe you came expecting to hear a word of encouragement and hope that speaks to the real challenges and questions of your life, to feel greater connection with God and maybe, maybe just possibly others. Most of us have pretty, ex pretty clear expectations of church, of this place, but what about Jesus? What are your expectations of him? What information has been passed on to you about Jesus? What experience has taught you about Jesus? I found that anyone who sticks around Jesus long enough in scripture and in life eventually has their expectations disappointed. You expected Jesus to be the great healer, but he couldn't or worse wouldn't heal your beloved friend or family member. You expected that once you committed to following Jesus, once you experienced the waters of baptism, your patterns of thinking and behavior would change for good, but you are still struggling with the same old things. You expected Jesus to teach love and acceptance, but you're finding that he has some disturbing things to say in scripture, and you're not sure what to do with them. You expected Jesus to care about the orphan, the widow, the poor, those imprisoned by unjust systems, but the fact that death and inequity and injustice are still with us leaves you wondering if this whole Christianity thing is more wishful thinking than anything, or worse yet, part of the very problem. What are your expectations of Jesus? What are you struggling to hold on to? What have you had to let go of? I found that anyone who sticks around Jesus long enough in scripture and in life has their expectations renewed over and over again. But gratefully, friends, it is not ultimately up to our expectations of Jesus. Rather than waiting until our expectations are right-sized, Jesus offers his own invitation, his own expectations to those who wish to follow him. And it's in the form of the most gracious invitation you will ever hear. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' invitation isn't for the strong and capable, for those who have it figured out or put together. It's for the overwhelmed and exhausted, for those who are struggling and caring far too much. Jesus calls us to come and promises us soul rest. And if you are like me, you think, sign me up. After all, if we are being honest with ourselves, not our Instagram selves or our Facebook selves, but our real selves, most of us are exhausted. Most of us work demanding jobs as professionals or students or full-time caregivers. We take care of kids and grandkids and aging relatives. We balance countless activities and internships, serve on boards and committees, volunteer, all while trying to maintain relationships with equally busy friends and partners, staying up on current news, and oh yeah, eating vegan, and oh yeah, fighting traffic. We hustle from thing to thing, precariously balancing the accumulated tasks and to-dos, responsibilities and commitments, and this goes for the various different seasons of life in which we find ourselves. We all experience the frenzy of contemporary life. Whether we're students, young professionals, parents with young kids, empty nesters, recently retired, long time retired, but always in demand. We are exhausted. Now, exhausted doesn't quite seem to capture it. Because when you're exhausted, you get to the point at which you can go no further. And the burden is simply too much and you have to drop it, even if momentarily. What we're experiencing collectively is what psychologists first diagnosed about 50 years ago as burnout. Reaching the point of exhaustion and pushing yourself to keep going. Burnout is exhaustion plus compulsion. With burnout, the feeling of accomplishment that follows a normally exhausting task, whether that's passing the final, finishing the massive work project, never comes. Josh Cohen is a psycho psychoanalyst specializing in burnout. He writes this, the exhaustion experience in burnout combines the intense yearning for the state of completion, this relief, with the tormenting sense that it will never be attained, that there is always some demand or anxiety or distraction which cannot be silenced. You feel burnout when you're exhausted and your internal resources are diminished yet you cannot free yourself of the nervous compulsion to go on regardless. Burnout isn't unique to this historical moment, but what is unique is its prevalence. It is the contemporary condition. Ironically, in the 1960s, futurists the world over thought that the main problem of the future would be too much leisure time. 
One famous Senate subcommittee in 1967 was told that by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours per week, 27 weeks a year. I literally wrote in my mar margins, what? <laughs> we all know that the exact opposite has happened. The average American works more now than ever before. And when Americans do get paid time off and we don't get much, we are the only uh, nation that does not have mandated time off, a 2019 study shows that we don't use it all. And when we do use it, unsurprisingly, we find it hard to disconnect, to actually leave work behind. Clearly, friends, the technological advances and optimization of the last several decades hasn't led to greater leisure, as expected. It actually has resulted in internalized overwork, hustle, burnout. Anne Helen Peterson wrote a 2019 BuzzFeed article that went viral, and it is titled, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. In it, she explained the ubiquitousness of burnout today. People patching together a retail job with unpredictable scheduling while driving Uber and arranging childcare have burnout. Startup workers with fancy catered lunches, free laundry service, and 70-minute commutes have burnout. Freelance graphic artists operating on their own schedule without healthcare or paid time off have burnout. People seeking secure housing while applying for a job without access to reliable internet, mail, or phone service have burnout. Academics teaching four adjunct classes and surviving on food stamps while trying to publish research in one last attempt at snagging a tenure-track job have burnout. According to Peterson, millennials, that is those born between the, age, between the years 1981 and 1997, have been uniquely impacted by societal and cultural shifts spurring burnout. She writes this of, a, of millennials, of which she is one. We are deeply in debt, working more hours and mar more jobs for less pay and less security, struggling to achieve the same standards of living as our parents, operating in psychological and physically, physical precariousness, all while being told that if we just work harder, meritocracy will prevail and we will begin thriving. We know it's not an equitable system, but it's winnable for a select few. And many of us believe that we, if we can continue to optimize ourselves, we can become one of them. The carrot dangling in front of us is the dream that the to-do list will end, or at least become more manageable. Whether you are a boomer, Gen Xer, millennial, or Gen Z, we are all living restless lives, and we feel it in our bones. Many of us carry with us deep, abiding exhaustion. We hustle, 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 check things off our to-do list, stay late, do more, but there is always more to do. It all feels so heavy. It all feels so relentless. So we try a few solutions. 
We try to temporarily escape. We do take that time off. We take a long weekend. We go on vacation. We sleep in. We binge watch Netflix. And yet there is always still more waiting for us on the other side. When we get back, when we turn off the TV, nothing seems to alleviate our crushing fatigue. Or, alternatively, we double down and try to self-optimize. We try life hacks like Inbox Zero, make overnight oats, start a bullet journal, use a meditation app five minutes each morning, do Sunday meal prep for the week, buy an adult coloring book. It's not that the getaways or life hacks or the $11 billion self-care industry are necessarily wrong. It's just that they won't fix burnout. Peterson in her BuzzFeed article writes that the problem with holistic, all-consuming burnout is that there is no solution for it. You can't escape it by going on vacation. You can't see it coming like a cold and start taking the burnout prevention version of Airborne. Burnout isn't like a place you visit and come back from. It's not a temporary affliction that we can optimize away. It is our condition. It is not a problem we can solve, but it's a reality that we must acknowledge. Long before the 21st century with its BuzzFeed articles and smartphones, Jesus understood the crushing weight of life even in first century Galilee. And he doesn't offer a solution. He offers something better, a yoke. Frederick Dale Bruner is a top scholar on the Gospel of Matthew, and he notes that it might seem strange for Jesus to offer those who are exhausted by the weight of life a yoke. Surely you think that exhausted workers would need a mattress or a vacation, not work equipment. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift that he can give those tired, worn out, burned out, is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear the responsibilities of this life. Whether in ancient Galilee or contemporary America, life brings with it burdens. We cannot get away from them. Jesus understood this. But instead of offering an escape or an optimization plan, Jesus offers equipment, a yoke. A yoke was a common idiom in the first century for a rabbi's way of teaching, of reading the Torah, the law, on how to be human, on how to shoulder the weight of life, money and marriage, prayer, divorce, conflict, sex, government, all the things Jesus addresses in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus isn't unique in that he had a yoke. He's unique in that his yoke is easy and light. Jesus reprimands the Pharisees later in Matthew, those other teachers of the Torah, for overburdening the people with religious excess. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Jesus offers a different yoke. Eugene Peterson, in the message translation, translates Jesus' invitation like this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. 
and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything too heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus means that obedience to his yoke will guide us in a way of caring life that will give us more rest than we have ever known. Now this sounds great, this sounds like something I am ready to sign on the dotted line for, but most of you, probably like me, are thinking, I am a follower of Jesus, I think, but I am tired. I'm worn out. I have a low-grade fatigue that I cannot shake. Am I missing something? What is up? In his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard describes what he calls the secret of the easy yoke. And it's surprisingly simple. If we want to experience the life of Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Follow his rhythms and routines, watch the way he does it, and do it the same way. That's it. We in the church often use the term disciples as a proper noun, but the original language doesn't actually refer to those 12 people Peter, Andrew, James, John, etc., etc., etc. It refers to those discipling Jesus, or better, those apprenticing Jesus. As a Jesus apprentice, they organize their life around being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus. The point of apprenticeship is to model your life after the one you are apprenticing. Take his life as a template for your own. Take on her habits and practices. Copy your rabbi's every move, and in so doing with Jesus, find rest for your souls. In his New York Times best-selling book, Atomic Habits, James Clear writes, your current habits are perfectly designed to create your current identity. You don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. Western churches, ours included, have lost sight of the way of Jesus in that it is just that, a way of life. Not just a set of ideas, a theology, or a list of do's and don'ts, an ethic. It is those things, yes, but it is so much more. It is a way of life based on the life of Jesus Christ himself, a lifestyle, a way of organizing and orienting our lives. Every morning around 7.30, I look up from my cup of coffee at the breakfast table and feeding little people to see the same man running just outside our door. He's older with bright white hair, bearing a striking resemblance to Bernie Sanders. Rain or shine, five days a week, he jogs past our house with a steady clip in his New Balance shoes and uh, hiked up tube socks. I've thought to myself, often when he runs past, I want that. I want to be able to run in my 70s. Heck, I want to be able to run in my 30s. <laughs> Like most New Year's resolutionists, I've gone through the motions, bought a new pair of shoes, downloaded an app on my phone. I even recently found a free treadmill so that sleeping kiddos would no longer be an excuse. 
In reality, I want the life, but I am not interested in adopting the lifestyle behind it. Friends, I will always choose sleep or coffee or reading. So I wave to Bernie as he jogs by, and I remain a spectator. I think the, true, the same is true of spirituality. We'd rather be spectators of Jesus, fans who admire and wave at him as he offers a vision of a life that we want, but aren't quite ready to adopt. Jesus sees his current generation, our current generation's ill-fitting expectations of the Messiah. He sees their exhaustion and burnout and he offers a different way, his way, a new way to bear the weight of our humanity with ease. At his side, it is not a solo yoke. With him doing all the heavy lifting at his pace, slow, unhurried, present to the moment. This invitation is for us, all of us, all of us who are weary and heavy burdened, who've tried to escape and found ourselves back where we started, who optimized ourselves every which way and still feel like too little butter spread over too much bread. Jesus' invitation is for you. It's for me. It is for us. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. As our worship team will lead us in song shortly, this invitation may be too good to be understood, but it is not too good to be true, dear friends. And all God's people said, amen. amen.